Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with... Onelen Zinzi, Tabiso Luhoko and Tami Kuza. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Nigeria and Cameroon vow closer cooperation against Boko Haram, Kenyan government urged to stop targeting Muslims in its fight against terrorism, and SADC facilitator Cyril Ramaphosa arrives in Lesotho. In economics, Zimbabwe aims to cut employment costs, and in sports news, Nigeria's under-23 team faces tough qualifier against Congo. But first up, the news with Onelen Zinzi. Thank you, Lulu. Looking at your news, Nigeria's army has freed 59 people held by Boko Haram, among them 29 women and 25 children. The hostages were freed as the military stormed two jihadist camps in the Kondunga district of Bono. Earlier this week, the army said it had freed 30 other hostages, including 21 children. Boko Haram has abducted thousands of civilians in raids on villages and towns inside Nigeria and abroad. Non-Muslims are forcibly converted to Islam. Sadek facilitator Cyril Ramaphosa is in Lesotho's capital, Maseru, to discuss the terms of reference of the Sadek Commission of Inquiry established to probe the Lesotho security. Ramaphosa was welcomed by the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Klohang Sakhamane, and Acting High Commissioner of South Africa to Lesotho, Silo Jele. The commission was established by the Sadek double troika following the killing of Lesotho's former Army Commander Mabarangwe Mahao Ntagwane Ten members of the commission have been gazetted by Prime Minister Bagadita Musisidi with the authority of King Litsier III. They will hear testimony on events from July 2012 to June 2015. Today, SADC facilitator, Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa, will go over the terms of reference framed in 19 clauses. They include the removal of both Lieutenant General Stadika Mudi and Maaparangwe Mahao and the August 30th military operations. The United States has begun delivering eight F-16 fighter jets to Egypt, the first since Washington fully lifted a freeze on arms delivery in March. All eight from this first batch will arrive on Friday, with four more to be delivered later in the year. Following the overthrow of Egypt's first democratically elected leader, President Mohamed Mohamed Morsi, in 2013, Washington froze $1.3 billion in annual military aid to Egypt. U.S. Secretary of State John John Kerry is preparing to visit Cairo for a strategic dialogue on Sunday. The Central African Republic will hold presidential and parliamentary elections seen as critical to drawing a line under a two-year interreligious conflict on October 18th. A transitional authority currently in place is charged with organizing elections and restoring democratic rule. Although the violence in CRR has eased in recent months, sporadic killings occur fueled by criminality. 
through deep divisions between Muslims and Christians still persist. Consultant to the Institution for Security Studies, Lizel Lowe, says stakeholders like France are not willing to wait for the disarmament of fighting factions or even a process of reconciliation before elections can be held. We know that elections are um, high-risk periods and campaigning and it also costs a lot of money. But yes, this seems to be the attitude of, as I say, the, some observers, the French, for example, are saying rather sooner than later get an elected government in place who can then start with reconciliation and disarmament rather than to have the transition to drag on too long. And finally, authorities in Sierra Leone have quarantined 500 people after a man died from Ebola in an area where the deadly virus has been gone for months. This is another setback for the fight against the disease. The victim is reported to have contracted Ebola in the capital Freetown and then travelled to his home village to mark the end of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. The people quarantined include 30 nurses who treated him for fever at a local hospital and his family and friends who buried him without following the special procedures required to avoid spreading the disease after death. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilin Sinzi. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Onele. It is 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. SADC facilitator and South African Deputy President Sul Ramaphosa has arrived in Lesotho's capital, Maseru, to discuss the terms of, the, of reference of the SADC Commission of Inquiry established to probe Lesotho's security. The SADC Commission of Inquiry is expected to hear testimony on activities from July 2012 up to the death of former Army Commander Maparangwe Mahau in June. The country's king, Lizia III, signed a government gazette officializing the establishment of the commission. Ntakwana Ngatani reports. The Government Gazette is published with the authority of His Majesty King Lysia III. It is Legal Notice Number 75 of 2015, titled Commission of Inquiry into Disturbances to National Peace and Stability. In it, Prime Minister Pakadita Musisidi appoints the Commission to probe incidents from July 2012 to the death of Maaparangwe Mahau in June 2015. The commission comprises Chairperson Botswana Judge Mpapi Pumapi and nine other security experts from South Africa, Namibia, Zimbabwe and Malawi. The terms of reference are framed in 19 clauses and include the removal and reappointment of Lieutenant General Tadika Mudi, the removal of Lieutenant General Maaparangwe Mahau and his killing, changes in the judiciary, the police and correctional services, the August 30th military operations in which a policeman was killed. Some say the operation was a coup, while others say the army intervened to prevent armed violence, as well as mutiny in the Lesotho Defense Force, among others. The bombings of the homes of Police Commissioner Khotazo Tswana and Tabani's partner Diabilu Ramuhudi and the attack on or near the home of bodyguard of Deputy Prime Minister Mutejwa Metsing will also be probed. 
The commission will have full autonomy to decide on how to conduct its proceedings. The Gazette states that the commission will be held in public, but the commission has the power to decide otherwise. These are the terms that SADC facilitator, Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa, is expected to discuss with key stakeholders while in Lesotho. The stakeholders include His Majesty King Lizia III, the government, opposition, civil society and religious leaders. I'm Takwanangatani in Maseru, Lesotho. The leaders of Nigeria and Cameroon pledged on Thursday to improve the exchange of intelligence and security cooperation along their border in a bid to tackle Nigerian militant group Boko Haram. Concluding his first visit to Cameroon since he was elected in March, Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari and his Cameroonian counterpart Paul Bia voiced support in a joint statement for a planned multinational task force to fight Boko Haram, which has sworn allegiance to Islamic State. Muki Kinzega reports from Yaoundé. Muhammadu Buhari promised collaboration with Cameroon, Chad and Niger to stop the already six-year-old Boko Haram insurgency in the shortest possible time. Buhari said there should be trust and confidence between countries that are contributing troops to fight the terrorist group, adding that he was optimistic. His visit blustered support for a multinational army to fight the uprising that continued to spread terror in the region and that in 30 days the troops should be operational. We cannot afford to falter in our resolve to rid our countries of this evil that is threatening to destroy our hard-earned freedoms and what we have achieved as individual countries and collectively in our sub-region. We recognize that none of us can succeed alone. The federal government of Nigeria is committed to respecting international norms to resolve this matter and to restore normalcy to all affected areas as soon as possible. Cameroon's President Paul Bia says they more than ever before need the support of all countries in stopping Boko Haram. Le terrorisme est aujourd'hui une menace globale. He says terrorism is today a global threat that requires a global response. Only a global fight against it can assure the prosperity of our people and guarantee the world of its peace, Paul Bia says. De la prospérité et du bien-être de nos populations et je dirais de la paix dans le monde. A final communique read by Ismaila Alihu, permanent secretary at the Nigerian Ministry of Defense, states that vigorous controls will be carried out regularly in border areas and standing free travel agreements between Cameroon and Nigeria will be re-examined next month. On security issues, the two heads of state noted with satisfaction the oncoming weakening of the operational capacities of Boko Haram. They condemn the terrorist attacks perpetrated by Boko Haram within the member countries of Lake Chad Basin and express their condolences and compassion to the civilian and military victims of Boko Haram. Their excellencies also reaffirm their commitment and renew support for the multinational joint task force in the war against Boko Haram. 
they expressed their common resolve to eliminate Boko Haram and in this connection agreed among other things to intensify the exchange of intelligence between the security services of the two countries. President Muhammadu Buhari reaffirmed the determination of his country to strengthen his cooperation with Cameroon and other neighboring countries for the rapid elimination of this phenomenon. Both heads of states pledged to strengthen security collaboration along their common border under the auspices of Nigeria Cameroon Transborder Security Committee and within the framework of the implementation of the concept of strategic operations approved at the extraordinary summit of the heads of state and government of the Lecture Basin Commission and Benin held in Abuja on 11 June 2015. Both heads of state welcomed the improvement of the surveillance of the maritime spaces of the two countries resulting from their combined efforts within their inter-regional institutions. In the face of persistent attacks at sea, they decided to enhance their security cooperation so as to make the coastal areas in land and sea waterways of Cameroon and Nigeria safer. The violence has displaced about 2 million people and killed 20,000 in Nigeria, Cameroon, Chad and Niger. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. Kenyan Muslim leaders have decried arbitrary arrests of dozens of Muslim faithful for allegedly supporting terrorists. The leaders say nine of their faithful, eight youth and a 60-year-old woman have been detained in Uganda for allegedly committing terrorism. James Shimangula reports. Addressing a press conference in the Kenyan capital Nairobi, Al-Haji Yusuf Murigu, one of the Muslim speakers heading Kenya's National Muslim Leaders Forum, lamented increased cases of reported disappearances and extrajudicial killings of Muslim youth and women for allegedly being involved in terrorism activities. These extrajudicial actions happened a few days prior to the visit of President Obama. The illegal actions are a constant source of pain and agony for the affected families and breed anxiety and resentment in the whole community. The Muslim leadership reiterates its call on the government to put an end to the culture of impunity and disregard of the, of the rule of law in its effort to combat terrorism. While we support the government's measures to weed out terrorism, we are concerned that the measures being taken are selective and often deliberately target members of the Muslim community. Shortly after the press conference, I exclusively spoke to Alamin Kimathi, chairman of the Kenya Muslim Human Rights Organization. Kimathi disclosed that fear is currently sweeping across Kenya's Muslim community. There's a lot of fear and despondency within the Muslim community. Uh, fear of uh, the counter-terrorism agencies, the, the military, the, the police and, 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 and related intelligence services, which use extra legal means in Indeed, extrajudicial killings have uh, been cited, and we have uh, evidence of so much of that, the increase of that in the, in the uh, past few months, and also enforced disappearances where people uh, who uh, might have been suspected, we say might have been because there's not real evidence to show that they were suspects, have disappeared. And also that uh, uh, families uh, have witnessed 
blatant violations of, 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 the, of the human rights, killings in front of members of the families, and very, very bold statements being made that, uh, that, that they, there's, there's those policies, violent policies, are going to be, uh, to be uh, the, the, the done thing. There, the people of the northeastern Kenya, where it's a predominantly Muslim community, and especially the Somali, uh, the Somali population, the Kenyan Somali population, which uh, who's, who, who reside in places where now have become the epicenter of, uh, of uh, violent extremism, terrorist activity, are also living in between a hard place and a rock. In that. On one hand, there are the Al-Shabaab insurgents, and on the other hand, the military and the police and the intelligence services using almost similar methods to to cow them down. How do you characterize very briefly Obama's visit to Kenya, and do you think his coming may have softened the strength of the Kenyan authorities to now see Muslims as people that should be treated very carefully, humanly? We hope it has, and uh, indeed it's our feeling that uh, there is going to be a relook of the, of, of the policies, on the, a softening of attitudes, and probably a change of uh, policy than, uh, than, uh, than we've seen in the past. But we also fear that there's an ingrained mindset within the Kenyan bureaucratic, uh, the, uh, bureaucracy, within the security services, that the George Bush methods are preferable over the Barack Obama. Also at the Nairobi press conference was Fatuma Ali Mohammed. She says her relatives are among nine Kenyans detained in Uganda on alleged terrorism charges. She names some of them. What happened is Jafar was following, our, following our, uh, the case of Muhammad Ali pro, out of the court the 1st of July, Wednesday. He was caught with police. What I'm um, just requesting the president of Uganda to do, to follow up and to help us to release our people. If there's any evidence, them to be taken to court. What offenses does the government say they committed? And where was it committed? And uh, are you getting reports of their conditions in prison? So far, the condition of uh, Muhammad Ali is okay. But for Jafar Ali, we don't, have, uh, we don't know his whereabouts till today. From 1st July till today. Uh, the government of Uganda, as it was uh, committing about Jafar, they say he was investigating or spying from the police officer's vehicle. And what we, are, we, we, we request the Ugandan government and the president of Ugandan government kindly, if there's any evidence, they take him to court. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A top human rights investigator says the time has come for a phasing out of sanctions on Cuba and Iran to protect the most vulnerable members in society. Idris Jazza. 
Jazare, who's the UN's first independent expert on human rights and sanctions, insisted that in Iran's case, punitive measures alone had not forced the country to the negotiating table to agree to a deal on its nuclear program. Ahead of his first report to the UN Human Rights Council in September, Jazairi explained to Daniel Johnson that one of the aims of his mandate is to get a better understanding about exactly how many sanctions are in place now. The hope of this mandate is that now that the process of diplomacy and negotiation has been started, there would be a phasing out of sanctions, which is a recognition of the failure of diplomacy. So there isn't a sense that, as some people are saying, these sanctions are what brought Iran, for example, to the negotiating table. You'd refute that. In the case of Iran, sanctions alone would not have solved the problem. But one must recognize that there's been a convergence between the imposition of stiffer sanctions on the one hand and a spectacular drop in the price of oil on the other. The combined effects of these uh, two factors, the pincer effect, I would say, has had a very damaging effect on the economy of Iran and in particular on the most vulnerable population groups in Iran, including women, children, people suffering from cancer, etc. That's the point, isn't it? There are targeted sanctions, but in fact, it's really the people on the ground, in your opinion, who are suffering. Do you get to visit these uh, countries, the countries that you're interested in as part of your new mandate? And I should say you are the first special rapporteur on international sanctions. Yes, I have already received an invitation to visit Sudan, which has been one of the targeted countries by international sanctions. My concern is not to discuss the politics of sanctions, but rather to address the adverse impact of what we call unilateral coercive measures on the most vulnerable groups, as I said there. And in the case of Iraq, it was clear that whatever benefit could be pursued, say, by trying to reduce the dangerosity, as it were, of the policy of the Iraqi government, these lost legitimacy in light of the sufferings which were imposed on the population. And you're going to be doing that with the presentation of your first report at the next Human Rights Council session in September, without wishing to give any spoilers. Can you give us an insight into your recommendations? Yes. First, I will be pointing out the necessity to get a clearer picture of what these sanctions are. I know that there are about 32 targeted uh, sanctions by the U.S., and I know there are about 37 by the EU. I know that the Security Council itself applies about 16 targets of sanction. We must remember also that there are many other cases of sanctions by individual countries which are not as transparent. I have written to member states applying sanctions and have asked them to send me the list of their sanctions. Unfortunately, I have not gotten a response. Are there 50 countries? Are there 10 corporate groups? Are there hundreds of individuals? 
We don't have a full picture and we appeal, I am appealing to members that apply sanctions and I'm not criticizing their right to do so, just to be transparent about it and to give us all the elements so that we can best together, in the spirit of consensus, address these issues and see if we can at least minimize the impact of these sanctions on human rights for the vulnerable segments of the population. That was Idris Jaizari, UN's first independent expert on human rights and sanctions, speaking to Daniel Johnson. The human rights situation in Belarus remains a concern for the United Nations, but constructive engagement is the way forward, according to the UN senior representative in the country. A UN independent expert said earlier this year that the past two decades there have been characterized by a systematic denial of human rights to citizens. The Eastern European country is in a period of transition as it moves away from an era dominated by its relationship with the former Soviet Union. Sanaka Samarashina, the UN resident coordinator in Belarus, has been speaking about some of the changes. Daniel Dickinson began by asking him how the average Belarusian is faring. There are economic challenges. The economy is uh, still uh, facing an uphill battle. Given the events in the region, the economy in Belarus is tied very closely to the one in Russia. So given the uh, situation in Russia, uh, plus also Belarus exports uh, a great deal to Russia and the Ukraine. So those exports have dropped. And, and because of that, I think the impact on the individuals, on the families, has actually been quite negative in the past year or so. We are optimistic. I'm hoping that this will change with some structural changes, some, I think, immediate financing that could come their way. At least for now, uh, you don't see uh, a collapse of, of the economy and in, 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 you don't see a huge impact on people's lives. The human rights situation in Belarus is a big cause for concern for the UN. What's the latest? The human rights situation in Belarus, like in any country, I think, is something that uh, the UN is concerned about. We do have uh, some concerns about the things that have been raised in the universal periodic review process in Geneva, which just happened a couple of months ago. At the Human Rights Council. At the Human Rights Council. At the same time, the position that we take is one of constructive engagement. One of the best things that the United Nations can do is to actually find a way to engage and ensure positive movement, whether it, it is with respect to civil and political rights or, very importantly also, socioeconomic cultural rights. We have a lot of programs that I think result in a tangible difference. Importantly, at the same time, is the process. Because it's one thing to say, you know, let's get a legislation on the books. For instance, we got legislation that was specifically aimed at fighting domestic violence. Now, let's say we're talking about access to services of people who are most vulnerable. One of the things that Belarus recently did with our support was to open up the borders of people living with HIV. So there are no more restrictions. And this just happened a few months ago. Another thing that we're trying to do now is to have Belarus sign and ratify the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. It's the only country in Europe that has not done so. And I think it will do so very soon with a lot of advocacy and lobbying on the part of the UN. There are these tangible products. But very 
very importantly, it's also the process. And one of the things I think that the UN does very well in Belarus is that it provides a, di- a space for dialogue for people within the country, coming from NGOs and, and local authorities and, and the private sector to talk to each other. It also provides an opportunity for the world to talk to Belarus and the Belarus to talk to other member states. I always say, you know, Belarus and the UN, our relationship, you know, it's, it, the UN is like a window to Belarus, for Belarus to look out and for people to look in. But I've changed that now. I say that we're actually a door for people to walk in and walk out and, and get to know each other better. And then you can actually have a constructive dialogue. That was Sanaka Samarashina, the UN resident coordinator in Belarus, speaking to Daniel Dickinson. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi, informing the world about Africa. Ngatani, in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.28 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Zimbabwe's Finance Minister Patrick Chinamasa has half the growth forecast for 2015 as the economy slows on the back of a crippling drought. Chinamasa unveiled a midterm policy review statement on Thursday that provides tax breaks for miners and tries to protect local industries. He's also committed to reducing government employment costs by half. Shingai Nyoka has more. Drought has reduced crop yields and forced authorities to cut growth forecasts in the agricultural-based economy from 3.2% to 1.5%. Finance Minister Patrick Chinamasa said on Thursday that the modest economic growth driven by an increase in gold, nickel and palladium production has been weighed down by an 8.2% decline in the agricultural sector. The faltering economy has forced government to reduce the national budget from 3.99 to 3.6 3.6 billion US dollars. Employment costs will gobble 83% of expenditure, leaving a mere $31 million for capital projects. Under pressure from the IMF and the World Bank, Zimbabwe has set its sights on reducing the wage bill, explains Finance Minister Patrick Chinamasa. The cabinet has given a directive to the minister responsible for the public service and the minister responsible for finance to urgently propose the remedial measures. <coughs> to gradually bring down the share of the wage bill in the budget from over 80% to under 40%. Chinamasa has proposed a raft of measures to encourage growth in gold mining, the local manufacturing sector, and to reduce revenue outflows. Small-scale gold mining royalties will be reduced from 3 to 1%. 
Duty on second-hand light vehicles will be increased and import taxes levied on selected basic foods and goods. Most significantly, a proposed ban on the importation of second-hand clothes and shoes, an industry which has provided a livelihood to thousands of unemployed citizens. I therefore propose to remove second-hand clothing and shoes from the open general import license. Any future importation of second-hand clothing and shoes will be liable to forfeiture and destruction. Street vendors are concerned. They've been telling us these things for a number of ways. It's not banned and it cannot happen, I think. She says, if they go ahead with their plans, it will destroy us. We are all educated, but there are no jobs. We know it's killing the country's economy, but we don't have a choice but to do it. Reactions to the budget have been mixed. ZANU-PF legislator David Musabayana. Well, we are seeing a change in the way we look at things. This is a homegrown budget where growth is going to be driven by mining, uh, driven by the tourism industry. Movement for Democratic Change legislator James Maridadi. The model that the minister is trying to use, getting money from pay as you earn, getting money from corporate tax, getting money from, 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 from excise duty, it does not work. But we are in this environment where there's 85% unemployment. Meanwhile, the government says representatives of workers, employers and government have reached a common position on proposals to amend labor laws with a view to relaxing them. Amshinga Nyoka in Harare. Our headlines up next with Onelen Zinzi. Chair has reintroduced the death penalty just six months after it was abolished. Nigeria names the head of a new multinational force created to fight Boko Haram. And Sierra Leone quarantines 500 people after a man died from Ebola in an area where the deadly virus had been gone for months. Channel Africa News. Thank you, Onele. Somalia's economy is on track to grow 2.7% in 2015, according to the first review of the nation's economic well-being in 26 years. The review by the International Monetary Fund describes the progress the Horn of Africa country has made towards rebuilding its institutions and restoring normalcy after more than two decades of civil war and recurrent droughts. Widespread poverty, gender disparities and low life expectancy, however, remain challenges. The IMF's chief of mission in Somalia, Rogero Zandamela, has been speaking to Priscilla Lecom. I would like to say that yes, of course, Somalia is indeed in the right track because it has the right framework, it has the right support from the international community that will help address the key challenge going forward. Evidence suggests that the economic conditions have improved rapidly over the past two years following the disruption from war and internal strife. Now, what are the main drivers of growth? I'm sure that's a question that you are likely to ask me many. The main one is livestock, fishers, and a very active private sector resurgence of the service industry, notably communication, 
construction and money transfer service, which are mainly associated with the return to Somalia of the diaspora. Summarizing, Somalia is back and it's in the right track. Great, but still in your report you've said that um, there are still some challenges and despite the growth which is close to 4% in 2014, Somalia is still facing challenges and uh, the report even says that the country won't be able to address poverty and gender disparities. So what are the main challenges for Somalia now to achieve sustainable growth? The most important one, I would say, is the security situation. As you know, The insecurity, I will summarize, the situation, Somalia has been in a state of war for quite a long time, for more than two decades. So insecurity remains an issue that we still have to deal with, that the Somalis have to deal with. Another one, another important challenge, I will say, they are uh, weak institutions. Somalia institutions remain extremely weak. And... Another important challenge, too, is the poorly developed financial supervisory framework. So now speaking about governance and budget implementation, I've read something very interesting in your report saying that uh, Somalia couldn't be applied for IMF assistance because it has still a very huge uh, debt and arrears, uh, a debt equivalent to 94% of its GDP. So what's the way forward? Uh, shall there be a debt relief or uh, will Somalia have to, to pay uh, to IMF? I will start by saying, I'm in a positive tone, that despite its arrears with the fund, with the World Bank, with the African Development Bank, many multilateral institutions, including many bilateral countries, pretty much with every country, there is a tremendous amount of goodwill in the world, in the international community towards Somalia. That's very important. It's a good starting point. So the international community will continue to support Somalia with financial assistance, training, capacity building. Now, until arrears are clear and the relationships with the international financial markets are normalized, Somalia will have to continue to rely on grants and donor support, which is definitely the largest source of revenue, meaning that we do not advise Somalis to go around and borrow more from the world. They should rely on grants and donor support. The fund will also assist Somalia in its areas of expertise, in particular developing a policy package that in due course and with the support of its Somalia's creditors will allow and enable Somalia to get that relief and clear arrears with the fund, the World Bank, and others, which then will allow Somalia to be able to borrow and sustain growth over the medium term. Okay, you are very optimistic for Somalia. And uh, maybe as a conclusion, what's the main recommendation of the IMF for Somalia to, to push forward and rebuild its economy? In Somalia, like in a number of many fragile states that we have dealt with, and issues of sound institutions good, and good governance are critical to help restore public confidence in government. Well, in the immediate future, for us, we see improving fiscal management as a critical component, including raising revenues and grants, which means outreach with the international community, and 
prioritizing expenditure. That was IMF's Chief of Mission in Somalia, Rogerio Zandamela, speaking to Priscilla Lekom. Dear listener, would you like to be featured on our website? Send us interesting pictures such as those of people, events, or anything you think is unique and interesting. Be part of our website and share those memorable moments with Channel Africa and the rest of the world. Don't miss this opportunity. Take a picture now, tomorrow, and every day. Pictures can be sent to info at channelafrica.org. That's info at channelafrica.org. You can view your pictures on www.channelafrica.co.za. That's www.channelafrica.co.za. And also on our Facebook page. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The Worldwide Fund for Nature South Africa Living Planet Conference brought together scientists, business leaders and government yesterday to help galvanize a critical transformation in the 21st century defined by constraints in resources and the trade-offs required across various sectors competing for limited good quality land, water and energy resources. To find out more on this, Wandile Kalipa spoke to Christine Colvin, Senior Manager for the Worldwide Fund for Nature's Freshwater Program in South Africa. The meeting today was looking particularly at how food, energy and water are all interdependent and how we need to do things differently in the future if we're going to have food, energy and water security for all going forward. And what do we say? has been identified as challenges for them? From the water perspective in particular, some of the challenges that were talked about were how do we acknowledge the role of the natural environment, which at the moment is not receiving direct investment to restore our river systems that are facing a lot of challenges on many fronts. We also talked about the capacity for government, particularly local government, to roll out the services that they are mandated to provide and we heard from government that about only a third of our local governments at the moment are really performing in a way that enables them to carry out all of their business needs and to meet water and energy needs for residents in their areas. We also heard about how we've had a lot of innovation. We have some great technologies, some new science that could enable us to do things quite differently. For instance, to start viewing wastewater as a resource rather than a problem. We could actually be generating energy from wastewater rather than consuming energy to clean it. And we could be taking nutrients out of wastewater, which of course we need for our food system. We need to fertilize our arable land. And we heard about in particular with sanitation, how we need to be moving much faster towards no water toilets or at the very least low water toilets. We simply cannot afford to be using clean drinking quality water as a mechanism to move human waste around huge systems in our cities. 
So there are some really radical points of rethink that we need to visit and look at how we can take what we already know to be good options forward and make them a reality. Now, this situation, is it a situation in specific areas of the continent or is it general, the whole continent? We initially had a presentation from Dr. Dion Nell that looked more widely at Africa and there are some differences between South Africa and Africa. For instance, in Africa broadly, our arable land and our water resources are underutilized. So hence the great sort of land rush and water rush to make best use of those resources, sometimes from foreign multinationals or foreign governments. Similarly, there's huge hydropower potential in Africa. Some of that on the Congo Basin is about to be realized and we're going to see a huge shift in the potential for power generation from Central Africa, also on the Zambezi, huge move towards hydropower. A key question for us is how do we do that sustainably? How do we maintain living and healthy river systems that in the rest of Africa that could potentially be powering the continent and feeding the continent with irrigated agriculture? And uh, now, how are the local communities participating with regards to the issue of the utilization of water as it is that uh, some experts are saying that we are a scarce water area and uh, others are saying as you mentioned now that we have uh, plenty water on the continent. At the community scale in South Africa, the area that I know better, there are local forums. There are areas where we're starting to see a lot of collective action happening. So where community-based groups are coming together, sometimes working in partnership with government to try and improve the resource base on which they depend. So we see a lovely example of that in the Mgeni. There's great work being done by the communities on the Doozy Mgeni Conservation Trust where local citizens are involved in monitoring their resources, monitoring the quality of the effluent that's coming out of wastewater treatment plants. And I think elsewhere, still in some of the rural areas in South Africa, in the Eastern Cape, for instance, still about a third of the households are reliant on natural water resources for their daily supplies, springs, boreholes, and rivers and wetlands. Further north into Africa, that's much more widespread. Rural communities live very, very close to their natural resource base and there we need to look at whilst we can improve the quality of water that communities receive we may not need to construct the huge centralized infrastructure intensive schemes to deliver water where really good quality groundwater or river water exists that can serve communities directly. You mentioned the issue of lack of investments into our rivers and uh, water system. What would be the way forward from the WWF's perspective? We'd like to see an increased level of investment in the natural environment. And that was Christine Colvin, Senior Manager for the Worldwide Fund for Nature's Freshwater Program in South Africa, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhuku.
The Zimbabwean government has announced a ban on the importation of second-hand clothes and shoes intended for resale. Opposition parties have criticized the ban, saying it will negatively impact the livelihoods of thousands of unemployed locals who have relied on selling second-hand clothes. Announcing the 2015 Mid-Term Policy Review, Finance Minister Patrick Chinamasa says the ban comes amidst health concerns but is also aimed at protecting the local clothes manufacturing sector. I therefore propose to remove second-hand clothing and shoes from the open general import license. Any future importation of second-hand clothing and shoes will be liable to forfeiture and destruction. Chinamasa has meanwhile committed to cut employment costs by half after revealing that this year the country will allocate 31 million US dollars off of the budget for capital projects. Announcing his mid-term fiscal policy statement, Chinamasa says government wages continue to take up 83% of the expenditure. The country has been under pressure from the IMF and the World Bank to reduce its civil service, as well as to reduce its employment costs as part of reforms to improve the economy. Chinamasa explains. The cabinet has given a directive to the minister responsible for the public service and the minister responsible for finance to urgently propose remedial measures to gradually bring down the share of the wage bill in the budget from over 80% to under 40%. The possibility of a a shortage of livestock vaccines and diseases prevention pose a threat to red meat industry and consumers in South Africa. The Red Meat Abattoirs Association of South Africa says that the shortage and backlog of various livestock vaccines was triggered by the Ondersport Biological Product Center renovation. Spokesperson Gerard Schutter says that the vaccine batch currently supplied to red meat farmers and producers is not enough to carry them through into the next season. The number of Indian tourists visiting Rwanda could soon increase following the signing of a cooperation deal between the Rwanda Tour and Travel Association and Outbound Tour Operators Association of India. Rwanda says that the Memorandum of Understanding will help in marketing the country as a must-visit tourist destination in India. Adding, the agreement will enable Rwanda to tap into the huge Indian tourism market and help improve the sector's foreign exchange earnings. Kenya's East African Breweries has reported a 36% rise in pre-tax profit to 138.52 million US dollars in the year end of June. The company, which is controlled by Britain's Diego, attributed the gains to higher revenue. One US dollar costs 1263 in South Africa, 998 in Botswana, 763 in Zambia, 64 British pound, 90 euro, gold 1084 dollars, platinum 982 dollars an ounce, brand crude 5305 cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update, I'm Tabiso Lohoku. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, reveille Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Le soleil est levé. Weya wema. What's in the happen, Africa? 
Africa Dumelang Sanbonani Africa Mulishadi Pulibwanji Africa Enyomi Kilonshele Africa Ndinkim Kinkunume Waiting they happen Africa It doesn't matter where you come from We, we are, are one people Channel Africa Channel Africa The voice of the African Renaissance This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria Channel Africa The voice of the African Renaissance Dear listener, would you like to be featured on our website? Send us interesting pictures such as those of people, events, or anything you think is unique and interesting. Be part of our website and share those memorable moments with Channel Africa and the rest of the world. Don't miss this opportunity. Take a picture now, tomorrow, and every day. Pictures can be sent to info at channelafrica.org. That's info at channelafrica.org. You can view your pictures on www.channelafrica.co.za. That's www.channelafrica.co.za. And also on our Facebook page. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Dear listener, would you like to be featured on our website? Send us interesting pictures such as those of people, events, or anything you think is unique and interesting. Be part of our website and share those memorable moments with Channel Africa and the rest of the world. Don't miss this opportunity. Take a picture now, tomorrow, and every day. Pictures can be sent to info at channelafrica.org. That's info at channelafrica.org. You can view your pictures on www.channelafrica.co.za. That's www.channelafrica.co.za. And also on our Facebook page. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, réveille-toi. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Le soleil est levé. Weya, wema. What's in the happen, Africa? Africa, Dumelang, Sanbonani. Africa, Mulishadi, Pulibwanji. Africa, Enyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen, Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. We, we are, are one people. people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. A sports update up next with Tami Kuza.
Thanks for joining us. The first test match between South Africa and Bangladesh in Chittagong has been abandoned as a draw after persistent rain made play impossible for the second day running. The second test is due to start in Maipur in Dhaka on Thursday next week. Natalie Jamanos reports. Unfortunately, due to heavy rains, yet another day of play in this test series between South Africa and Bangladesh was lost due to rain. No play at all was possible on day two, after Bangladesh on the first day made 246 for eight in 88.1 overs. It was supposed to start with Nasir Hussain on 13, waiting for the new batsman, after Mohammad Shahid had been dismissed yesterday by Dale Stain right at the end of the day. So far in the innings, Dale Stain has picked up three for 30 and 16.1 overs, including four maidens and also his 400 wicket as well. JP Germany chipped in with 3 for 27 in 15 overs, so he bowled 4 maidens as well, while Dean Algar took 1 for 22 in 7, and Mornay Morkel picked up 1 for 45. And finally in golf, the top scorers are relishing the Salta Energy Paul Lorimesh play at Mikalings near Aberdeen. Nick Dye reports. The event is Laurie's brainchild in his home city, so he's been determined to do well, and yet also preoccupied with all the staging and background elements. Now, he says, other duties have been taken off his hands, and he can get on with playing, and he's made light work of Romain Wattel with a 5-4 and four victory. Ramsey's had to come from three down to beat Shiv Kapoor, while Warren was taken to the last hole before edging past Richard Bland. The top seed, James Morrison, is safely through, while into the last 32 go Ryder Cup players Nicola Colsar, Eduardo Molinari, Robert Carlson and David Howell. John Daly, however, has bowed out to Jorge Campillo. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Nigeria and Cameroon vow closer cooperation against Boko Haram and SADC facilitator Sul Ramaphosa arrives in Lesotho. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today and this week. For myself, Lulu Kabu, producers Pumuzora Magaza and Tlanta Mahlangu, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or an SMS on 277-969-57930, or you can also tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of our for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Chico with a song titled Shibam Bam.
Come on, 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 come on,